Welcome to Spirit in Action. My name is Mark Helpsmeet, and each week we bring you visits and conversations with people doing healing work for this world, hearing what they're doing and what inspires them and supports them in doing it. Welcome to Spirit in Action. A great deal of the good work that gets done in the USA is done through nonprofit organizations, work that is vital to the well-being of millions of people in this country. Often, these groups are at the forefront of care for the homeless and hungry, needy and oppressed folks whose welfare doesn't get addressed by government, and certainly not by for-profit institutions. Given the deep compassion and connection of these nonprofits, it's all the more remarkable that way too often their own staffs are getting by on near-poverty wages. Fortunately, there are folks looking for a solution to this conundrum, and Betsy Leander Wright of the organization Class Action is here to talk about some of the problems, insights, and solutions that they found in their newly released report, Staffing the Mission, Improving Jobs in the Nonprofit Sector. Betsy Leander Wright joins us via Zoom from Arlington, Massachusetts. Betsy, what a delight to have you back today for Spirit in Action. Delight to be back with you, Mark. This isn't the first book that you've written since you did the Missing Class book, is it? No, I have. writing has not been my thing in these last five years, but this project got me back into writing again. Class Action did this survey of nonprofits, and the results were so compelling that it needed a report to present them to the world. What is it you do spend most of your time on? I mean, my interview with you was back in March of 2014, so we are now six years later. I think you've done a lot of work in between. Yeah, a very different kind of work. So shortly thereafter, I took a full-time job teaching sociology. So that's one reason I haven't been researching and writing nearly as much is I have a different kind of audience of talking to students about inequality and making progressive change specific subset of sociology? Well, yeah, about unjust inequalities by race and class, and occasionally I teach about gender. And then, of course, my passion in response to those injustices always is building social movements, effective activism. So all my classes, well, I also teach research methods, but except for research methods, everything I teach is either activist skills and social movement strategies or it's race inequality, or class inequality. And what we're going to be talking about today is specifically your release, the report called Staffing the Mission, Class Action Report, by you and Anastasia Lynch. Who's Anastasia? Anastasia is a longtime nonprofit worker. She has a lot of her own experience with nonprofits to draw on. She went back to college and got to a college that paid her to work with Class Action, the national nonprofit that I work with. So we lucked out to get Anastasia. So a lot of the um, little snippets of dialogue that you see, the quotes in the report, Anastasia interviewed people and contacted people to say, oh, this thing that you wrote in the survey, can we please quote that? And now she's working on social media for Class Action. So she's a great message spreader. She comes from a a working class background herself and has been a first generation and low income college student. 
So she's got the fire in her belly of people who want to work for progressive causes should not have to take a vow of poverty. This was a natural topic for Anastasia because she would like to work for economic justice and she would like to be well paid for it. So the other party to this, Anastasia was working for Class Action, your organization. Could you explain to our listeners for Spirit in Action what Class Action is? Yes. So Class Action is about 15 years old. One way to think about it is that if a nonprofit or a college or a religious body wants to work on diversity, they have literally hundreds of consulting firms and nonprofits to turn to trainers, people who lead workshops about racial diversity or gender diversity or LGBT diversity. But we are the only organization in the country that can provide workshops and consulting on social class diversity, the way that the working class and people and people in poverty within any organization may be marginalized, the culture may not fit them, maybe economically not being well served, and how reducing organizational classism would enable the organization to live its values better. That's the main thing we do. For example, we work with first-generation college students, people whose parents didn't go to college, but now they are, who drop out at alarming rates, but do much better if their college has a first-generation student support groups, services. So we do an annual conference of first-gen support programs at colleges in the Northeast. A lot of the programming is led by students, and we do a lot of consulting to colleges. We don't see first-gen students as just a bunch of deficits of needy students. We see them as an enlivening force to colleges. That's our ethic, and that's an example of what we do, because colleges say we're about equal educational opportunity for everybody, but in fact, they don't live up to that mission. They, in fact, give advantages to the already advantaged the Staffing the Mission Project is in that same tradition that nonprofits have ideals that they're failing to live up to, and they could use some advice and support to be able to staff their missions. When I read your book, and this was six years ago, Missing Class is the name of the book, it was so wonderful. I had so many insights, in part because I am myself a straddler. That is to say, my parents didn't go to college. I'm one of 12 kids, and I'm the only one out of 12 to go to college. You so definitely, it was really insightful. And to see how the different cultures, the stuff I had lived, was carried out. So I am well aware of the valuable insight that you bring to looking at issues of class. But this is specifically about working with nonprofits. So could you state what the overall goal, what you would hope the outcome is going to be of this report? Well, not to sound overly ambitious and grandiose, but the outcome we want for this report is to transform the nonprofit sector and the philanthropy sector so that it supports good jobs decent jobs, that if you go working for a beneficial cause, you should be able to support a family, have decent health care, have the same working hours. And that's not the case now, but we think it's achievable that if some funders change their practices and start supporting decent jobs at their grantees, 
And if nonprofits shift their practices and their attitudes towards employees' basic human needs, we think the sector could become someplace that you can really have a more comfortable career than it is now. Well, you know, this applies to me because Northern Spirit Radio is a nonprofit organization. I actually deal with my boss, who's kind of me. He doesn't pay me enough, right? Because <laughs> it's a question of where we get our money from. So I'm well aware of the conundrum in my personal experience. But I had a really interesting personal experience also back, uh, I guess, 32 years ago when I moved to Eau Claire. I started up a company, a computer programming consulting company with a couple partners. I just dug out the bylaws that we drew up for ourselves. And I'm going to offer this to you again, because you work with nonprofits and you work with companies to have better class integration. I feel like when we wrote this purpose, again, back 32 years ago, I was looking forward to this moment in this interview. Here's what we wrote for our bylaws. The purpose of this corporation shall be as follows. One, to provide a place of employment which allows the employee to attain their maximum potential in terms oh. of health, intellect, spiritual growth, and well-being while earning a comfortable income. Ooh, I love it. Number two to encourage life-affirming values in the employees and their business contacts, including nonviolence, care for the environment, simple living, and the equality of all people. And then three, to distribute profits of the corporation between the stockholders and employees such that the largest portion of the profits are distributed on a profit-sharing basis to the employees. Only nominal profits are intended to be distributed to stockholders. (laughs) Realistic. That's great. So having read your report, again, this was for a for-profit organization right. or minorly for-profit. I'd say in part, even though it was a for-profit corporation by the state of Wisconsin, I was balancing the same kind of values that a nonprofit would use, right? And so you've heard our purposes, as we wrote down 32 years ago. How would that be different, except for the third point, from what a nonprofit organization should be writing into their bylaws? Well, I think now your company would be called a B Corp, right? A B Corporation, multiple bottom lines. And nonprofits, of course, have to have an educational or charitable mission to be a tax exempt, uh, incorporated as a nonprofit in the 501c3. So they have to have one ultimate bottom line you really wouldn't be able to do bylaws like that for a nonprofit because that would sound like self-dealing. So the the top purpose, the top mission has to be the eligible nonprofit or charitable or or educational purposes. But there's nothing to preclude you from saying, we're not only going to put our values out into our work in the world or work in the community, we're going to put our values into the way that we treat our staff, the way we run things internally. And that's one of the best practices that we're recommending. You start with your mission, you start with your organization's values, and you say, what do those values imply for the personnel policies, for the HR practices, for the compensation levels and ways of setting pay to have it grow out of the values? So currently, We have anti-poverty organizations that relieve the human needs of poor people in the community while simultaneously paying poverty wages to their staff. Very ironic, contradictory. And 
it's not in most cases that the management wants to do that, but that's what the funding allows. There's some things you can do without additional funding, but that's why you have to get some change from the philanthropy sector as well. One of the things that you say early in the report is that nonprofit employees are not satisfied with wages. You report that 40% of the 80-some, 82, I think, nonprofit organizations that they rated only fair or very fair wages that they get. How does that compare to what's in the for-profit industries, employees? How does that compare? Is that, in fact, worse than what happens in for-profit corporations? Now, we were asking a question that almost no one asks of for-profit companies, which is, what do you think is fair? And to compare what's happening with their own standards of justice and, and fairness. I don't know of any such study. In terms of the pay levels, there are some for-profit sectors that have much, much better pay than most nonprofits, of course, for high-tech and professional jobs that gap can be vast. There also, of course, are for-profit sectors that are extremely low paid. So I don't think the nonprofit sector takes the prize for the worst pay if you compare minimum wage jobs, agricultural jobs, service sector, janitorial jobs, and so forth. If they're not unionized, they might be the very lowest. But we're often talking about people who we're talking about professional jobs, or at least skilled administrative jobs or skilled human service jobs. So the low pay is sort of more shocking in terms of comparison with the amount of education and skills. So what we recommend is you start from what do people need to live on. So there's an MIT living wage calculator, you can put in any county or metropolitan area in the US and find out What's the real cost of living? It's constantly updated for family of each size in that area. We recommend that people start by figuring that out. And are you paying anybody below that amount? So that's really what wage surveys do is show that many nonprofits are paying way below the real cost of living in their area. For example, we're working with a wonderful regional nonprofit called TSNE Mission Works, They did a wage study just a couple of years ago, found that the median pay for New England nonprofit workers is about $38,000 a year. And in the greater Boston area, there is no housing that you can get. There's public housing, but it's like a time where you're waiting list. Even with two of those jobs, there basically is no housing, no home ownership or rental where you can get by with less than $50,000 a year. So we have this high living wage in our area and many other cities have the same and this low average pay. It seems to me, and I I was kind of surprised this wasn't in the report, uh, you did report on job desirability in terms of fairness, in terms of transparency, a number of other factors, right? But you didn't talk about job satisfaction in the sense of, I feel like I'm doing valuable work. Yeah, there are a lot of surveys out there on job satisfaction. um, So we didn't want to reinvent the wheel. But I think that is a lot of people have the motivation if they care about a cause or meeting a community need. There's a lot of millions of people are motivated to work for nonprofits but many just find they just can't afford to do it for very long because the pay is so low. 
there's a real difference in who ends up sticking with this career, choosing the satisfaction that comes from believing in the mission over the pay and benefits. It's people who already have a lot of class advantages. So it's disproportionately the whole charitable sector, the employees are disproportionately women who have spouses who make a good salary or who have inheritances who can afford to get the small amount of pay. And some of the pushback to change the sector, there's an entire rising generation of young leaders of color pouring into every cause you can think of, into the environmental movement, it's much more diverse than it used to be, for example, and of course all the community organizing and anti-racism and the Me Too movement. And there's a very loud chorus of voices saying, we don't have that backup. We don't come from all this privilege. We don't have rich families. And so for us to stay in these jobs and take leadership, these need to be family wage jobs. These need to be decent salaries, good benefits, or it's just going to be a constant churn of young people coming through for a year or two, which frequently happens. Yeah, so we want everybody, no matter what your background, should have that option of being able to afford to work for the cause that your heart is passionate about. I'm not sure I saw the number that would be persuasive to me, which is to say, I'd like to know to take a job with an organization I really believe in the mission of, as opposed to just doing wage slavery, what the difference is in the wages that you're getting. I'm not sure if I saw that. Well, because for that, we would need a comparable sample for profit and nonprofit of similar sizes and so forth. So no, as far as I know, no one has done that. But when I was mentioning the study before, I didn't have the name in front of me, and now I do. The best thing written about this, I believe, to date is the study called Wage Equity Matters by TSNE Mission Works. Uh, that used to be called Third Sector New England, but they now go beyond New England. So TSNE, Mission Works, Wage Equity Matters. That's a much bigger and more thorough study of all over our region in the Northeast, where I am, of how much do different nonprofit jobs, how much do executive directors get, how much do administrative assistants get. So that's the closest. And then you'd have to take that and compare it For example, in the Bureau of Labor Statistics website, bls.gov, you can get the median pay and the entry-level pay and so forth for any occupation. So that would be, it would be doable, but no, that's not what we did. (laughs) This is not a comprehensive study of the entire labor market. Somebody should do that. This is more a cry for attention to a big social problem and advocacy and advice for how to fix it. And remember, folks, we are speaking with Betsy Leander Wright. The class action report, which she co-wrote with Anastasia Lynch, is called Staffing the Mission. The website, I think you want to track Betsy and the work that class action is doing down is called classism.org. I believe they can download the report from there. Yes. So first of all, you can Google Staffing the Mission Project and the page comes right up. But also, if you go to classism.org, the homepage for class action, there's a programs tab and the bottom 
program is staffing admissions. So yeah, you can download the report in PDF form for free or order paper copies from us. Yeah, I'd love to have some of your listeners see it. And also the other thing that's at that project page, the staffing admission page, is a survey asking people for their stories and for their values. So what's the worst nonprofit job you ever worked? What's the best nonprofit job you ever worked and what made it good? And then what do you think managers of nonprofits can do to make life better for their employees? And what do you think funders can do differently to raise the level of nonprofit jobs? And again, remember the website is classism.org. The link is on northernspiritradio.org. One of the points that you make, you just spoke about it, Betsy, was that the staff of these nonprofits is disproportionately white. I think, and let me see, it was a, this was a report from the New England executive directors who were surveyed in 2017. 90% were white, only 3% black and 2% Latinx. So 90% of the population is not white. So we know that whites are overrepresented there. And as you said, this is in part because whites, they've got money from elsewhere. They've got advantages elsewhere. Maybe they already own a house, you know, or whatever. I took this, though, when I saw it, I said, well, good. I'm glad the whites are taking the low-paying jobs. <laughs> Let's push the minorities who've been deprived so long into the jobs that we're not going to take. Okay. Now, first of all, those numbers, that is from the Wage Equity Matters study. That is the percentage of executive directors. So the top, that's the CEO of a nonprofit, is the executive director. And in the New England region, but I think it's true elsewhere too, 90% are white, even though our country as a whole is 70% or about 66% now white. Um, So it's disproportionately white people. If we were proportionate, a third of the executive directors would be people of color. But actually at the bottom levels of the direct care workers, the clerical workers, the nonprofit sector actually is disproportionately women of color. And we all know this, of course, about people who care for children and elders and sick and disabled people, that that's a lot women of color and in some cases just, you know, paid really poverty level jobs. But even for advocacy groups and other nonprofits that aren't direct service groups, who tends to get hired as the receptionist, as the administrative assistant, as the development assistant is lots and lots of people of color, not just women of color. So there's a racial inequity within nonprofits. And we need to be done with this because there's just tremendous passion for justice out there among communities of color and tremendous talent and vision and leadership. And so it's time for a generational power shift where all kinds of diverse people people of color, LGBT people, people who haven't gone to college but have gotten their life experience, working class people have gotten their expertise some other way, to rise into leadership. And most importantly, people directly affected by the social problems that the nonprofit works on. The directly affected people should be the community that the leadership comes from. And the practices of foundations and keeping nonprofits so starved for funding are blocking that generational shift of power towards more racial equity. 
And there's some really valuable structural problems that are keeping us from the equity that we want. And that's a lot of what we'll find in, if you read the report called Staffing the Mission by Class Action. So there's two parts we can look at. One is a comparison of average wages within nonprofits compared to other places. And there's structural things that happen within the nonprofits and how equity issues are being addressed or not being addressed there. One of the things that you state is important is that making decisions based on prevailing wage is not a wise idea. Could you talk a little bit about that? Because there's kind of a knee-jerk thing. Even I had it. It's like, well, this is what you usually get for this kind of job. Here's what you should be paid. Right. That turned out to be by far the most prevalent criterion for, well, what should be the pay at levels at our organization. Well, what's everybody else paying? So not only is that prevalent, but it's widely perceived to be fair. We're going to do our best to pay what everybody else pays. However, prevailing wages have been suppressed by generations of race discrimination, gender discrimination, union busting, the ability to sort of squeeze some job categories down to not earning all that much in an artificial kind of way. So if you start with prevailing wages being your baseline, you're going to end up paying inadequate amounts. Instead, the baseline should be employees' needs. You start with human needs. What does it cost to live? What does it cost to support a family? What kinds of health benefits do people need to actually get health care? And if you start there, sometimes you might end up at the same place. Certainly at the high levels, I think you would end up at the same place. Like, well, if we're an environmental group, we need a lawyer. Probably the prevailing wage, will, the lawyer will get their needs met. But you can't use prevailing wages for human service workers or community organizers or administrative staff the things that are traditionally done by women and people of color, because you can get away with paying inadequate amounts because you're competing with other employers who also pay inadequate amounts. So that's an issue. It is internally important, but it is an issue comparing to people outside the nonprofit industry. The things I found most interesting in your report were the things that can happen internally and the structural changes in nonprofit philanthropy that have to change to remediate, maybe fix, you know, better. And then there's best. I was looking at the charts at the end of the report, what you have to do to fix things within. So talk about the problems within organizations. What are the glaring ones? Well, the lack of transparency about how pay is set and the absence of unions, which keep everything, you know, rational and explicit of the different job levels and collective bargaining in the absence of that, in the absence of some kind of public sector, you know, civil service layers, it can happen in an informal way that can turn out to be very unjust. And we were surprised at how that was actually the thing that people were angriest about where not only did we get most people rating their nonprofits as unfair was transparency, but also the vitriol of the comments, how angry people were to discover that somebody else in their same job category had negotiated themselves a higher salary. And in some cases, those tended to be the very confident, highly educated white men who had been raised to be assertive. People were angry at that. They were angry at assuming there was a small ratio between the top and the bottom pay within a nonprofit and then discovering, no, actually, somebody is 
is getting extremely high pay. So that, and just that it's unknowable. Does the board make these decisions? Does the executive director make them? Is there a management committee? Is it written down somewhere? That just infuriates people because lots of people understand revenue is limited, the pay has to be limited, but they want the process to be fair and explicit. Not that everybody has to know how much everybody makes, um, although some nonprofits have gone there, but that everybody has to know, here's the criteria for raises, here's the range, here's the ratio, here's who decides, what time of year do they decide. And that's something that even the most broke nonprofit, I've worked for broke nonprofits, I've been an executive director (laughs) who couldn't possibly pay enough, but that's something you can do. There are things you can do. We have a section of the report called, what if the the spirit is willing, but the revenue is weak. That's something you can do is get really clear about how pay levels are set and what people can and can't know about that. Another thing you can do is try to be really reasonable about hours. Try to allow people to have that home life balance. So you may not be able to give people a raise, but you can give them some comp time if they have an enormous crunch of running a conference or something or you know, the annual publication deadline or the annual audit, you can do some paid leave afterwards, let people rest and recuperate. So there are things that you can do even in the absence of some additional revenue. But we also are making the case, don't take your limited revenue lying down. That if all nonprofits who were upset at how their funders treat their needs for money If everybody started speaking up about this at once, the funders would have to change their practices. The funders have a long-standing tradition of trying to give as much as possible for the actual work of the nonprofit, the impact, the product, and as little as possible to what's called overhead. There's this big overhead aversion. Of course, there have been scandals of, you know, scams pretending to be nonprofits and taking the money for internal, for the, you know, the founders lining their pockets or spending it all on more fundraising or whatever. So of course you have to guard against scandals, but of ones that are actually fulfilling their charitable or educational mission, the idea that you should do it with as little overhead as possible is actually preposterous. We don't hold any other business to that standard. You don't go into the pizza shop and say, well, I'll pay for the person flipping my pizza but I'm not going to pay for that person mopping the floors. And, you know, are you really, do you really need that many bags of flour for this pizza? Like we would be ridiculous as customers if we did that. And that's basically what foundations do to nonprofits is we want to pay for the impact and we're going to put a very strict limit, like sometimes as little as 10% or 15% for your other operating expenses. But nonprofits have rent to pay. They have administrative staff to pay. And often the most effective way to reach the mission is to have a well-funded organizational budget where the computers work and there's somebody to fix them and, you know, there's somebody to answer the phones. And there's, it's not good practice to do what's popularly called the nonprofit starvation cycle. But it's, it's habitual. People look up charities in the Charity Navigator, GuideStar, all those rating agencies, and they look for the smallest percent possible spent on overhead and fundraising. That's a ridiculous criterion. And we don't think that what we're doing there is 
we're incentivizing nonprofits to create terrible jobs. I want to ask you more about that in just a moment, Betsy. We are speaking with Betsy Leander Wright for Spirit in Action today. Our website, northernspiritradio.org. On our site, you'll find the website of Class Action, the group that prepared the report that we're talking about today for Spirit in Action. Their website is classism.org, but you'll also find links to all of our guests of the last 14 and a half years, including my interview with Betsy back in 2014 on the book, Missing Class, Strengthening Social Movement Groups by Seeing Class Cultures. That's a wonderful book, and uh, the interview that I had with Betsy so enlivened me to an area where I had not paid sufficient attention before. Also on our site, there's a place to comment on these programs, and please go to our website, including you, Betsy, and comment on this and other programs and let us know you're listening and rate. And there's also a donate button. That is how this full-time work is supported by donors who want to make sure this thing continues. And so please click on that if you can. And if you can't, do remember to support, in any case, your local community radio station. Local media is so absolutely important in terms of getting the word out. They need your help. Without that voice, we are limited to six corporations that are owning more than 90% of the media in this country. They have a stranglehold on what makes it to your ears. So please support your alternative media, especially your local community radio station. Again, we're speaking with Betsy Leander Wright, website classism.org. The book is called Staffing the Mission, a Class Action Report that, that Betsy co-wrote with Anastasia Lynch. You were just talking about, Betsy, the tendency that many people have, and I've had the same tendency, to look and want to give to the organizations, the nonprofit organizations, that have the smallest amount of overhead. Uh, that's not unusual. So, for instance, at one point, I had, a, you know, you'd call it a, a foster child, an adopted child in Africa. And so I wanted to make sure that as much money as possible was going to the mission as opposed to the apparatus. And it's really hard for us as donors, and many of us are donors in our own right, to decide how much overhead is appropriate and what's good, how much is would be actually stealing from our intended purpose, right? When people give to Northern Spirit Radio, it's virtually all overhead because what we do is publicity. We're trying to lift up voices of people changing the world, like the work of class action. So we're 100% overhead. Does that mean you shouldn't give to us? I mean, obviously, that's not what I think. Could you talk a little bit about how you wrestle with that issue? Because we do want the mission, the outcomes to be important. And there's definitely staff time and consideration that needs to go into that. How do you balance that? And is there a measure anywhere that can say it makes sense in this industry that your overhead is 25% and for Northern Spirit Radio, it makes sense that it's 100%, but for goodwill, it should be X percent. Yeah, I mean, I think we as donors need to really get to know the organizations we give to as much as we can, which is hard for us to do as people with just a little bit to give. But foundations often have the capacity to really look into that and find out what the needs are. And if you're giving at that level where your grant is creating one or more full-time equivalent job, to say 
What we'd like to see is foundations making a commitment that we're not going to fund jobs at a poverty level. Because yes, perhaps they're squeezing that staff person so hard that, yeah, that more children get fed or educated, but we're having an unintended bad consequence. We're causing poverty at the same time. So to say we're going to commit as a funder to giving in a way that creates decent jobs. We're not talking about people getting rich off working for nonprofits because that would be a a waste and a scandal, but to have a benchmark and there's this marvelous one for Canada, but our intention is to create one for the U S because it doesn't exist yet. As far as we can, as far as our search has, our search has not turned up anything. Yeah. The Ontario nonprofit network, this fantastic organization took the term decent work out of the, the UN declaration of human rights and the the millennial goals of the United Nations, that all human beings have a right to decent work. And they took that phrase and they said, okay, what is the decent work checklist? What's the pay level? What's the type of benefits? What's the type of hours? What's the type of working conditions? What's the type of input into decision-making at the organization? And for each of those questions, they have a basic level, that you should at least get up, like you at least have to pay the government minimum wage. Then they have the better level, and then they have the best level. It's marvelously detailed. We have the link to it and an excerpt from it in an appendix in the report, and I really recommend it and them. So staffing the mission, we're going to create one of those for the U.S., but we're not jumping to do it right away because we want to be in dialogue with a lot of smart people about the nonprofit sector. And the other thing we're going to do is ask foundations to commit to doing what's in their power to create decent jobs at their grantees. So first of all, most foundations don't ask about the pay. The, the highest paid people are public, on publicly available tax documents. So that's, that's easy to know how much do the people at the top make. But is there a huge ratio? Are the people at the bottom making it decent living or is it poverty wages? So foundations could start asking. And then, of course, they have to step up to the plate and give more. Give without these ridiculous overhead limits. So multi-year unrestricted grants where you trust the nonprofit to do what's right with the money. And we're going to create a certification that if a foundation asks the questions of applicants about their internal pay practices and what's the lowest level, and then commits to funding in a way that allows for all the jobs to be decent jobs, then they get the certification. There's one of these in the UK. It's called the Living Wage Funders Network where funders, I think it's over a thousand funders now in Britain, have gotten certified as living wage funders. So we're going to create one of those too for the US. That's in the five-year plan for staffing the mission. And this is only going to be doable for foundations if they start giving away more of their assets. The rules for foundations, the federal law has not been changed since 1967. And the requirement that to keep their nonprofit, their, you know, their IRS status, that they're, they're a foundation and not a for-profit, they only have to distribute 5% per year of their assets. 
And that's not only in their grants, that's also in their own expenses. So most of 5% can go for their own offices, their own staff. And one question we want to pointedly ask foundations who have these well-paid staff, so do your grantees pay as well as you pay? And if not, why not? You know your staff is valuable. (laughs) You know what they need. You know what good work they do, and you're paying them commensurate with that. Well, why shouldn't your grantees be able to do the same thing? So the 5% needs to be raised. It needs to be raised now during this current, the recession that we're entering, the the, um, pandemic crisis that we're entering. It needs to be raised now, and it needs to stop including the operating expenses of the foundation. That there's, there's huge, vast piles of wealth mounting up, a lot of it in donor advised funds and foundation assets that's needed right now. And so we're letting them get away with murder. We're letting them dole it out a little at a time at a time of great and historic needs. Climate change is a huge crisis that needs to be confronted. Now the coronavirus and the recession that we're entering, we've been letting the philanthropic sector off the hook for too long. So if if that turns around, then this ability of nonprofits to staff their own missions um, with decent jobs will be achievable. Folks, we're speaking with Betsy Leander Wright of the organization called Class Action about their report, Staffing the Mission. The website is classism.org. It's on the NordenSpiritRadio.org website. One of the things I read in the report, Betsy, is that the change that the IRS did, I guess it was the IRS, probably on behest of Congress, I'm not sure, that it used to be that foundations were required to give out 6% at least, and it was dropped to 5 Why was that? That didn't make any sense to me. No. Well, I I think there's a lobby of foundations. Foundations have grown in size and scale and political power because of all, you know, there's this this new era of super rich people who are, you know, to their credit, giving away the, the billionaire pledge of Bill Gates and other Warren Buffett and others asking other billionaires to give half or more away while they're alive. That's great. But what we're seeing is an enormous growth in the philanthropic sector and their political clout. So, you know, I don't think it should be allowed that you can get the tax deduction by just taking your millions or your billions and putting it into a donor-advised fund, but not actually dispersing any of it. That's legal right now. That shouldn't be legal. There should be a time limit on how long you can leave it sitting there and get a tax deduction. So I think that the recipients of the funds need to have need to build our political clout and use it to counterbalance some of these wrongheaded ways the government has acquiesced to the philanthropic sector's lobbying. I mean, of course, many. I'm not trying to blame the philanthropic sector. Lots of them do give away more than 5% voluntarily. But the ones who don't and the ones who keep it parked in donor-advised funds, they should have their feet go to the fire. I was uh, grimacing a little bit because I was realizing you were saying that the donors, the foundations, the funders for law nonprofit, that they have been mixing their administrative funds in with the 5% that needs to be disseminated, right? right? And and that that is in fact limiting the amount that's going to the organizations who so desperately need it. 
But I realized that that would probably put pressure on those foundations, funders, to reduce their administration budget, which is kind of, so I was kind of grimacing thinking, well, wait a minute, what's good for the goose and the gander and, and right. a, a few of the ducks and crows too, you know? Well, so we don't want anyone to go below a livable level. Of course not. But I'm not just talking about their administrative staff. I used to do a lot of foundation fundraising when I worked for these scrappy non I, mean, I still work with a scrappy nonprofit, but scrappy nonprofits. And some of them, I would go to hand deliver my little grant proposal. Some of them have really lush offices. And I remember this one that Every day, there was a different uh, floral arrangement that was taller than me. So I would, like, come over and deliver my grant proposal, and there would be this enormous, lush flower array, decor. And then I'd come back, they'd be like, oh, well, but you didn't give us this financial form. I'd run back the next day, and it would be a different, really tall floor. And I would be like, just give us the cost of the flowers and we'll be happy. <laughs> and I'm not saying they are typical that some of them do have reasonable ordinary offices and I want them to be comfortable, but, but there's no law against that. There's no limit on what they can spend on their own operating expenses and there ought to be. Are you saying that quite literally of that 5% that they're required to spend each year, yeah. that they could spend 4% on their overhead and here's 1% that's going to go as, to organizations who are working with homeless people? Yes, that's legal. That's legal. I know. And yeah, yeah. So we have the, we have the greatest amassing of vast wealth and the, the greatest size of foundations we've ever had in this country. And we have arguably some of the most urgent needs we've ever had as a society. And this is how we're regulating this very important industry. It's a time of, you know, we've had government budget cuts in meeting human needs and in the arts we're now a couple, several decades into state, local, and federal budget cuts, and we're pushing everything off onto the nonprofit sector, and we're still we're still having those rules left over from 1967. I'd like to ask you a couple kind of challenging questions, and they come out of my own experience, of course, and perhaps my own skewed view. I'm completely with you, by the way, Betsy, and with the work of class action in terms of equity within an organization, transparency, all those kind of things. I mentioned my company that I had, computer yeah. programming. We had employees at one point up to 10 employees. We paid everyone the same wage. Ooh. It was universal and there was no hiding anything. So, I mean, I, those things come naturally to me, right? <laughs> But not I am going to go that far, obviously. Of course, not yeah. everyone. And it makes sense as you talk in the report. And if folks, if you read the report, Staffing the Mission, you'll see insights into the way things are structured. You'll ask yourself, why haven't I asked that question before? Why don't I look at what's the difference between what entry-level workers make and what the CEO, in essence, the director is making? How big should that difference be for an organization which is doing good in the world? There's so many valuable reference that you'll find in this report that'll help you think better about making the world effective. But here's the thing that I still don't think I have a grasp on, and it may just be my lack, and that is I've been part of organizations like food co-op. When I became vegetarian back in 1976, I became part of a food co-op. That food co-op, the only paid person was the manager who got a very few hours per week. The store was staffed entirely by volunteers. Yeah. And of course, this was the mid-70s. 
where volunteerism was much more normal. Families typically had one wage earner per house. It was pretty typical in those days. By the time 1980 came around, that was vastly changed, right? So there was a lot of volunteer time. And I loved volunteering at the food co-op. As a matter of fact, I became unemployed seven months before I went in the Peace Corps. And I volunteered there basically full time. And it's the best job I've ever had. I didn't uh-huh. get paid, but it was a job I loved, <laughs> right? Yeah. And so what I want to ask you is the question about volunteerism. Yeah. Clearly, there's people who need to support a family. They need to have, be able to eat. They can't do with uh, poverty wages uh, to make a living. And a lot of nonprofits are pushing people in that order. But there's also this thing about volunteerism. Mm -hmm. If you have at the food co-op, what happened was eventually some people, we had some paid staff and there were volunteers. And it's like, wait, I put in 20 hours this week volunteer and you put in 20 hours as an assistant manager and you got this much, I got nothing. Is that fair? So one of the things I'm concerned about is that increasing wages will decrease volunteerism. Mm. Oh, I don't think so. Because managing volunteers, running a volunteer program and finding ways for everybody to plug in is very labor intensive work. I've been in that kind of job. And it sounds like that manager at the food co-op was in that. There actually is a lot of volunteerism these days. The millennials and this new generation, Generation Z, are very community service minded. They volunteer at higher rates than Gen X did or some eras of the of us baby boomers. So a lot of it's happening. And of course, I've been an activist and at hot movement moments, when a a social movement is growing, people pour their time in unpaid out of, you know, the sheer exuberant of of making something, making collective action happen. And and so I, I think the if we tallied up all the volunteerism happening right now in climate change groups and, and priced it out on the open market, there'd be billions of dollars of value being generated, right? So I don't think this is incompatible at all. But when the hot movement moment is over and things need to now become regularized, life needs to, people need to go needs back. to be sustainable. Yeah, once it needs to be sustainable for people who have kids and mortgages and rents to pay, you can't just all be piled into the church basement. I always think of SNCC, the Student Nonviolent Coordinating Committee during the Civil Rights era, where they took on all these people as quote-unquote staff and let them live on the floors of people's houses and paid them, I think it was um, $10 a week for their expenses. And that was such a great deal to get that floor and that $10 that thousands and thousands of people wanted to be a SNCC worker. But you can only do that for so long. And mostly we're not at those moments. Mostly we're at places where people need to sustain their lives over the long haul. And nonprofits need to create volunteer opportunities that are sustainable for people where you put in, you know, a few hours here and there as you have time on top of making a living or caring for kids or whatever. So I don't see these as opposite impulses at all. I think a healthy not-for-profit sector will have scads and scads of people who have slack time doing what their heart desires. And some of what will enable them to do that is they have decent paying jobs or someone in their family has a decent paying job and they have health coverage and they don't have to work two jobs 
you know, it's a scandal that people in the U.S., the people in Northern Europe think we're insane, right? That why well, do we, we are. People, we are, <laughs> clearly. Why do we have people working two and three jobs? If everybody could work just one job, we'd have a lot more people volunteering, whether that's just tossing balls to the softball practice in the nearest playing field or working at the food pantry or running a, a climate change that if you can just do one job and, you know, the old labor movement slogan of like eight hours for work, eight hours for rest, eight hours for what we will. Once work, because if we have a decent standard of work, so it's you can cover your needs in those 40 hours or even less, and then you can rest and you've got some slack. So to me, those are, that's not a contradiction. We should have a healthy third sector. We have the government sector, we have the for-profit sector, and we should have a varied third sector where some people work full-time for nonprofits, some people mix it up with different kinds of gigs, but it all works out. Some people have a day job and then volunteer. And sometimes we all drop our lives and pour into activism for a while, but we should have a decent, <laughs> we should have decent work to go back to. Absolutely. Well, I'm with the goals of the organization called Class Action, including Betsy Leander Wright, who's here today. She's co-author of a report called Staffing the Mission. Betsy Leander Wright co-wrote it with Anastasia Lynch. I'll have a link to the organization, classism.org, on nordenspiritradio.org, so you can check it out, find more information, get involved in it. And I think this is the key point to carry away is Let's make nonprofit organizations sustainable. We want them to be equitable and sustainable. And there's a vast amount of wisdom in this report that'll help move us in that direction. So please check it out, get involved. Whether you're on the side of a nonprofit organization or a funder, you both have important parts to play in this work. So please get involved in that. And Betsy, thank you so much for the enduring work you've done. You're stepping up to the plate whenever the need's there. Thank you for doing that and joining us today for Spirit in Action. It is my pleasure, Mark. It's always good to talk with you. And I thought of one other thing to say about the website, that we have a survey on the website where if people go there and see the description, see that where you can download the report. There's a link there where you can tell us about your best or worst nonprofit job and what you think nonprofit managers should do differently to make jobs better and what you think funders should do differently. So I would love to see some of your listeners writing us their thoughts. It's the bottom of the Staffing the Mission page on classism.org. Again, thank you, Betsy. I also want to thank Andrew Jansen for production assistance on today's program. We'll see you all next week for Spirit in Action. The theme music for this program is Turning of the World, performed by Sarah Thompson. Check out all things Spirit in Action on northernspiritradio.org. Guests, links, stations, and a place for your feedback, suggestions, and support. Thanks for listening. I'm Mark Helpsmeet, and I hope you find deep roots to support you to grow steadily toward the light. This is Spirit in Action. With every voice, with every song, we will move this world along, and our lives will feel the echo.